we've been doing a series called Christmas Gifts. And in this series, we've been walking through the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to open them with me to the book of Matthew, that's where we'll be today, Matthew chapter 2. Our first gift was the gift that God is utterly in charge. He is quietly in charge, so you can't always, he doesn't always tell us what he's doing, but he is competently in charge, meaning he moves history in the direction he wants it to go, and he is consistently in charge, meaning he doesn't lose track of history for a minute and then try, go looking for it to try to get it back. He is quietly, competently, consistently in charge, and our word for this was providence. The second gift was that he is with us. He is with us so that we don't have to be afraid, so that we don't have to be mad all the time, so that we can stay on mission. We don't have to just become puddles. And our word for this, that him, he is with us, this gift was Emmanuel. This week we are on the third gift, and it has something to do with the song that we sang just a couple minutes ago. It was totally foreign to us. It goes, I bring an offering of worship to my king. I'm willing, I guess I'm not. I say I'm willing to bet. I guess I'm not willing to bet because I'm not a betting man. I bet none of you woke up this morning and said, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to bring an offering of worship to my king. Because we don't like kings. Because we're Americans. We came over on the Mayflower because we don't like kings. So we have this strong place in us that doesn't like authority. That says, I'm not trying to submit to authority. I'm trying to do things my way. I have the right to pursue happiness how I want to do it. And I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. But I think, I think that's, there's good reason to be suspicious, suspicious of authority. I mean, there's a reason for these feelings, for sure. But don't you also agree that when we get rid of authority, sometimes it gets confusing, and you just don't know kind of what to do or what to believe when nothing is authoritative anymore. So, so just to kind of illustrate this, think of, think of some of the words that have come up over the last couple of years, like fake news. Well, if you can't believe the news, how are you supposed to know what's going on in the world? And maybe there's a reason that we have fake you know, the, some news is labeled fake. But it's confusing. You have to agree with me there. It, it's confusing. You know, there's, there's this thing now that I'd never heard of before until recently called alternative facts. All this time, I thought facts were facts. Now I find out that some facts are alternative. You have to admit whether or not you think that's right or wrong. It's confusing. Like you're going, for the love, let facts be facts. You know, and maybe further down the line you have, well, you know, and as a kind of a result of this, you kind of have, well, I'll tell you what, you have your truth, I'll have my truth. Everyone needs to speak their truth. Our truth, your truth. Going, I, I thought truth was truth. Like, I, I don't want to be old-fashioned, but it, 
it does kind of leave you lost at sea when you don't know what to believe. And you're kind of wondering, is there anything that is true, that's always been true, that always will be true? Well, that's what we're going to look at today in this third gift. So here we are, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah... In the days of Herod, what are those next two words? The king. So when you read your New Testament and you see Herod in other places, you need to know that this, these are his kids. This Herod is very old at the time of this writing. So he's been king for about, about 40 years at this point. He's an old man and crazy, if you believe the history written outside the New Testament even. And so we read this about him. He was an Idumean, which means he was, comes from the Edomites. And so he's an Idumean, appointed king of the Jews under the authority of Rome. You'll see king of the Jews again in this text, okay? But the Romans decide Herod, an Edomite, is the right guy to be king of the Jews. Here's the only way I can think of to help us feel this, how much the Jews would hate this. It'd be like, remember the 13 colonies when like Britain was in charge of us and we were a colony of Britain? Remember that? And <laughs> not that old, I think I heard. Okay, so you might not personally remember that, but you know that's in our history books. And so what if, what if England chose a Canadian to be king of the Americans? Would that go great? This is what Rome did. They said, you know, Herod, the Idumean or Canadian, would be a great king of the Jews, or the Americans. The Jews hated him. They hated him for lots of different reasons, but one of which was he was an Edomite. They're ancient enemies. Okay, so he was an... I'm going someplace with this, all right? So I'm telling you this history for a reason. And one of the reasons is Herod's truth... Remember we talked about your truth, my truth, their truth, our truth. Herod's truth is that Herod was king. This is a truth that he would ruthlessly defend. This is a truth that he would gather evidence for. He was a master builder who restored the temple in Jerusalem. So even today, when you go and see the foundations of the temple, this is Herod's temple. This was the temple that Herod began and work had continued on this temple to G when Jesus was an adult, walking around, they were building on the foundations that Herod had laid. He was a master builder who restored the temple in Jerusalem and built many theaters. Look, some of these theaters are still standing. This guy, this guy was awesome. And cities, I've been to one of them, which is Caesarea, where he built a man-made harbor. Can you imagine in the ancient world without cranes making a man-made harbor? How on earth would you make a man-made harbor in the ancient world? Like have that donkey swim out there with that stuff and drop it right? How would you do it? He's a genius. And he's gathering evidence that he is king and he is awesome and he is the star of the show. It's his truth. 
He built palaces and he built fortresses. Some of them are still standing, like at Masada, which was the place where the Jew, Jewish rebels held out against the Romans in 70 AD after the sack of the city. They were still using Herod's stuff. Like when you go to Jerusalem today, a lot of the architecture that you see that you go, whoa. Most of it was built by this guy, Herod the Great. He was the only ruler of Palestine. So Palestine is the name the Romans gave Israel to tick them off. So it's when um, Rome was in charge of Israel. He was the only ruler of Palestine who ever succeeded in keeping peace and in bringing order to disorder. And I'd say since David, Solomon. He was ruthless. He was cunning. He was gathering evidence for his truth that he is king and probably will be forever. So this is a list of people that he had killed to defend the idea that he is king, to live his truth that he is king and no one else is king. See, he, he went a little crazy living this truth. He killed his, he had killed his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law. Now stop, stop, because it's, <laughs> I know, right? You're like, well, you know, I mean, it's his brother-in-law, you know? Some mother-in-laws are hard to live with. I don't know. His brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and even his favorite wife. He has killed because he's crazy, trying to live his truth, trying to defend the idea that he is king. Not only that, at the end of his life, when he's old and more and more deranged, more and more crazy, in his final years, his three eldest sons were also killed on the suspicion of plotting to seize their father's throne. He has his own kids killed, defending his truth that he is king. Better make sure your truth is right before you try to defend it. I just got to tell you this just because it's fascinating. gives you some uh, insight into who this guy was and how ruthless he was. Less directly related to the threat uh, to his throne, but further testimony to Herod's remembered character. His alleged plan, fortunately not carried out, but Josephus, a Jewish historian writing for the Romans, does record this. And we have no reason to think it's not true. He planned, gathered them up, to have all the Jewish nobility slaughtered at the time of his death. So he knows he's dying. And he knows there's going to be a lot of parties all over the city. Because he has been using the people for his building projects, overtaxing them, using them, taking advantage of them. Everyone's afraid of the guy because they might be killed next. He knows there's going to be a party when he dies, so in order to make sure there's not parties, he gathers up all the Jewish nobility, and so he's going to have them killed when he dies so that the grieving is real. This is a bad dude. This is a dude that says, you're going to sacrifice for me because I am king and you are not. This is a dude that says, I'm going to use you to build my legacy. I'm going to use you to meet my goals. This is Herod, the king. In the days of Herod, the king, behold, the wise men from the east 
came to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem there is the yellow dot. Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Can you see now why this would be problematic? These guys come with their... I mean, these you don't travel across the Arabian desert without stuff. You know, they come with their group and they're wandering around Jerusalem asking where the palace is so they can find out where the king of the Jews is. Can you see why that would cause a stir now, knowing who the king is? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. The star is... Uh, prophesied back in Numbers by Balaam that the star of Jacob will rise and it will defeat Moab and Edom. Probably Herod didn't know that, but his boys did, and they would have been able to fill him in on the details. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And when Herod is troubled, everybody's troubled. All Jerusalem and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they say king of the Jews. He knows what that means. He knows it means the Messiah. Stars don't rise for average kings to be born. When the star rises, that means the Christ is coming, the long-awaited anointed one, the one that history has always been waiting for. He's coming. Here he is. He's coming. So he says, guys, guys, where is this going to take place? And they're like, well, of course. We know the answer to that. They told him in Bethlehem, six miles south of here. I mean, it's just right down the street. You can walk there. They told him in Bethlehem of Judah. So it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, they're quoting from Micah 5 too. I mean, you could quote from Micah 5, right? And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here they are on the spot. They splice together Micah 5 2 and 2 Samuel 5 2. Micah 5 2 saying where he's going to come from. 2 Samuel 5.2 saying who he's going to come from, the line of David, and what kind of ruler he's going to be. He's going to be like a shepherd that leads his people. Another word for king in the Bible, like shepherd king. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. You know, sends everybody out of the room, just him and the wise men. He says, guys, guys, I want to worship him too. Trust me. And it's ascertaining from them the time the star had appeared. So he knows how old the king will be. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. You know, something I'd never realized before, until, until make, really just making the PowerPoint for this week. Did you notice that? It looks for all the world, the star that they had seen, when it rose. It looks like it led them to Jerusalem. 
I had never realized. I thought the star just led them straight to Bethlehem. But it looks for all the world like the star led them to Jerusalem so that Herod and his court would have fair warning. So that the scribes and the chief priests would know the Christ is here. And they could come and worship him if they wanted to. God even sent prophets, kind of, to them to warn them and tell them. And when the star, when they had seen, when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense. So, so remember we said a key idea for Matthew is that Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament. So in Isaiah chapter 60, it talks about how the kings from all over the earth will gather to Israel and bring their wealth, especially gold and frankincense. So here they are, kings from the east, gathering bringing their wealth, opening their treasures, bringing him gold and frankincense. And there's one more, and you know, myrrh. And this is what Jesus will be anointed with after his death by Nicodemus, the John 3, 16 Nicodemus. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, what does this, what does this have to do with, with us? What does this have to do with alternative facts? What does this have to do with fake news? What does this have to do with your truth or my truth or their truth, our truth? Well, here, here's how I would, here's how I would, what I would offer you. I'd say this is about how Jesus is king. Jesus was born king. It's not like Jesus needed a vote to become king. Jesus was king. Not like a politician, not like a partisan, not like someone running for office. Jesus was king. Herod was very invested in his truth that he was king, and Jesus just showed up and was king. And I don't, I don't know where that, like, what is your truth in relationship to whether or not Jesus is king? Herod, he, he got to live this lie his whole life until he didn't. And he stood before the king, the real king, gave an account. One day you and I will stand before the king, the real king, and give an account. He is king, and it doesn't matter what your truth is. It doesn't matter what my truth is. The truth is that he is king. We have this amazing built-in perspective that 
we are the center of the universe, like each one of us individually, that we are the star of our show, that we are the hero of our story. And we also have this, I think maybe because we have that, we also have this built-in sense of failure and shame, and it's not working. The good news is that he is king, and we're not. That he is the star of the show, and we're not. That he is the hero of the story, and we're not. I'm not, and you're not. He is. This is relief, that he is king, and we are not. So when life feels totally out of control, don't panic. Of course it's out of control, because you're not king. He is. The question is, is this good that he is king? So, so he is king, but like, like we said in the beginning, the world has been filled. We have a long history of kings abusing power. So Herod was a you, a you for me kind of king. Like you are going to die trying to build my projects, king. You are going to die so that I have assurance that I can stay in charge kind of king. He had a you-for-me attitude that is so common with people in authority. <laughs> and it's also common with people not in authority. It's just kind of how we tend to operate. If we see ourselves as the star of the show, the hero of the story, the king of our universe, we tend to view other people as tools or pawns or assets for us to try to manipulate. Is that what the kind of king Jesus is? So see what they call him here in chapter 2, verse 2, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You know who the next person will be to call Jesus the king of the Jews? Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. When, when uh, they bring him Jesus to say, this dude needs to die because he claims to be the Messiah, Pilate will say, was it true? Are you the king of the Jews? You know who the next people will be to call Jesus the king of the Jews? The soldiers, when they deliver Jesus over to be crucified, and Jesus is taken by the soldiers, and they put this scarlet robe on him, and they're beating him, and mocking him, and spitting on him, and they put the crown of thorns on him, and they give him a scepter, and they're beating him, and mocking him, and spitting on him, and they'll say, Hail to the king of the Jews, mockingly. You know the final statement where it says that Jesus is the king of the Jews? All of this is in Matthew 27, by the way. It's, of course, the placard, the summary of the charges against Jesus, which is above his cross. The king of the Jews. Here's why I bring that up. I bring that up to say that the first people to recognize this were Gentiles. There are they're from the east. And they came and they saw Jesus was king. The last people to recognize this will be Gentiles, they'll be Pilate, they'll be soldiers, they'll be the centurion who says, surely this was the son of God. But Jesus is king. Before I say that, I need to say, you know, David was king, Saul was king, Solomon was king. 
to shepherd their people and save them, really, from the Philistines and their enemies. Remember they, why they asked for a king? They said, we want a king. Back a thousand years before, back in the time of Saul and David, they said, we want a king to save us from our enemies, to lead us out into battle. And so Saul's primary assignment was save them from the Philistines. David's primary assignment was save them from the Philistines and the bad guys and the enemies all around us, whether they be Moabites or Edomites or Philistines or whoever they were, Ammonites, whoever they were around them. But Jesus is king. Jesus is king so that Philistines and Edomites and Moabites and Anamites and Romans and Americans can be saved as he gives his life for ours to rescue us from the real enemies, sin and death. Him for us, his righteousness for our sin. Him dying the death that we deserve so that we could have the life that only he can give us. Jesus is the king that saves his people from their sins. So he said, what does this tell us about Jesus? Well, it tells us that he is king. It tells us that he is the kind of king that lays down his life. He's not a you-for-me king. He is a me-for-you king. I'll give my life for you, king. He's also a king... Before I, before, I, before I get there, let me just point out something. I kind of alluded to this earlier. Notice how well these folks um, in verse 5 knew the Bible. So the chief priests and the scribes, you know, Herod calls them together and asks them where the Christ is going to be born. And I, you know, remember I asked you how many of you could quote from Micah chapter 5? You know, how many of us could quote from 2 Samuel chapter 5? Like, these folks knew their Bible, the, the people in that day, knew their Bible probably better than any of us in this room ever will. The only exception to this might be the kids who are like five years old and younger. They would have a chance to know their Bible as well as them because they grew up without TV, without video games, without novels, without phones, without... They grew up with Torah. They grew up with the book, and that was it. And that's what they gave their lives to, was studying the book. They knew their Bible far better than I do or you will. I mean, it's just they knew their book well. What I want you to see here is that that is not worship. They knew their Bible better than the Magi that came. The Magi, they're just following a star. They didn't know their Bibles. They, just, they, they knew somehow that star meant a king was born of the Jews, and they, they didn't know. They they didn't know. They didn't have all that much light. These people here in Jerusalem, they had a lot of light. They had the entire Old Testament. They knew it well. Now, imagine with me that some of these guys, maybe some of the scribes were in their 40s. I think it's possible that some of the scribes were in their 40s. When the Magi, these weird guys from the east, come in there and ask about the king, and Herod Herod asks them, brings them in. That'd be, that'd be memorable, like Herod bringing me in. Herod the Great, scary Herod, bringing me in, asking me where the king of the Jews was going to be born. Maybe they're in their 40s. Now, think of like the end of Matthew. 
So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And the end of chapter 27, we'll start in verse 62. So this is, the, this is near the end of the book. Jesus has already died. Jesus is buried at this point. Twenty-seven, sixty-two. The next day, so after Jesus is dead and buried, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that the imposter, that's Jesus in their minds, that the imposter said, while he is still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away, and tell all the people that he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. You know what's fascinating here? That really struck me as I was studying this? They understood what Jesus was saying better than the disciples. Jesus says to the disciples, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. On the third day I'm going to rise. They scratch their heads and go, yeah, but can I be king when that happens? Like they, they just have no idea. Like, can I sit at your right or your left? Or, you know, can we have this argument about who's going to be the greatest? They have no idea. They don't understand. Even the disciples don't understand what's going to happen. But the Pharisees do. The scribes do. The chief priests do. I'm saying, 30 years later, maybe they were in their 40s. Maybe some of them remember. Maybe some of them remember when the Magi came from the east, and here they are 30-some years later in their 70s going to Pilate saying, we got to make sure this guy, because he said he was going to rise from the dead. Knowledge, knowledge is not the same thing as worship. You might, you might have a lot of knowledge. You might have more knowledge than most believers. That's not the same thing as worship. That's not the same thing as being one of God's kids. What Jesus requires is that we receive him as Savior and Lord. And when we receive him as Lord, that requires obedience. And knowledge is not the same thing as obedience. You may, you may be able to quote verses, you may have grown up in Sunday school, you may have grown up studying your Bible, and you may be utterly lost. Because you're still living the truth that you are king of your life. So what should we do? Well, um, I like to keep things simple, so I'm just going to say this in a couple words. Here's what we should do. We should worship King Jesus. So, this is the title to our car, actually to the van, and, uh, you know what? You've bought and sold cars before, many of you, and you know how this works. Um, once you sign over the title, 
and you give the other person the keys, then who has control of the vehicle? They do. You don't have control of the vehicle anymore. When we first moved here, I was driving a, a white Avalon and drove that. For, I, I had driven it for years, and then Caleb drove it for a while. And then it was time to sell it, because it was just time to sell it. And so we signed over the title, we gave him the keys, and you know what? I had no more say over what happened to that Avalon. I didn't get to go back to him, even though I see it driving around town sometimes, even though I know where it's parked, I don't get to go to that house and say, hey, hey, I, I need the keys to that, my car back. Um, I'm just going to borrow it for a couple days and then you can have it back. I don't get to do that because I signed over the title and I gave them the keys and it's no longer mine. Someday when we sell the van, Lord willing, someday, we'll sign over the title, we'll give them the keys and it will no longer be ours. See, this is the best way I can think of to say this is what worship is. Worship is you signing over the title to your life, you giving God the keys, and you saying, you are in charge and I am not. I'm going to come to the house and I'm going to try to take control back again. You just remind me that you are Lord and I am not. You just remember that you saved me from my sins and you are Lord, and I am not. You just remind me that you purchased me by your blood, and you are king, and I am not. And when we sing, this is what we remember. This is kind of what we go back to. We go back to this idea that he purchased us with his own blood. And he is in charge. And we obey him because he is king, and we are not. This is the truth. That is God's truth. It has been true all along and will always be true. That he is king. This is the third gift. This is the gift that he is king and that we are not. And this is good news because it means the Herods of the world are not king. This is good news because it means that he is a me for you king. I'll lay down my life for you, King. This is good news, so let's rejoice. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would pull us towards yourself today. Lord, that we would count the cost and decide again that you are King and that we are not. To align ourselves with you and joyfully worship you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.